Good morning. Apologies for the slight delay getting started. Uh, I would love to blame somebody else, but I'm the only one here, so I've just got to blame myself. Um, we are continuing a journey in Philippians. Uh, we're in chapter 2 today, so if you want to turn there, please, we will be just covering a small number of verses, but they are rich and they are good, so hopefully we'll hear something this morning that will encourage us and challenge us in our walk with God. Um, it is actually a year, uh, well, it's a year tomorrow since we last met without restrictions and masks and all of those things that have become uh, commonplace for us in recent months. Can I just commend you, church? I love you. Thank you for continuing to connect and to use the means that we have at our disposal just to maintain relationship, to maintain prayer, to gather around the Word. It's been, it's been a long year, but hopefully we are heading in the right direction. I think I said this time last year that we would continue to meet, and then about two days later, uh, watching the news and thinking we're not <laughs> going to be continuing to meet. It's good to be able to change your mind whenever you need to. So this is, uh, this is Philippians chapter 2. This is the sixth message in the series on Philippians. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm loving it. As I've been mentioning in the prayer meeting on Tuesday nights, I really want this to go deep within us, deep into our hearts, deep into our relationships with one another. I want to be profoundly, I personally am being profoundly challenged by what I'm learning in this letter that I have read for a long time. Uh, but it feels fresh and it feels new. And I just really hope that for, for us as a church community, that this will really sink deep in us. So let's read verses 12 to 18 of Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Starts off with a, a therefore, okay? And we'll return later to the therefore because what Paul is obviously doing is he is referring back to what's gone before and leading on from it. Look at how he addresses them in verse 12. So we're getting straight in because we're going, we're going deep here today and into this passage. He, he addresses them as his dear friends. He uses a term of affection. Paul Whenever he writes to his friend Philemon, or Philemon, I never know which it is. We'll find out someday. He says in verse 8 
of the, the short letter to Philemon. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. And whenever Paul is giving commands to his churches, whenever he is telling them how they should be living out the gospel, he always appeals in love. He has the authority to be able to just say, do this. But he doesn't. He loves the people. He knows that for the people to obey Christ and live out their faith well in the context where they find themselves, that will bring them joy and that will cause them to be fully alive. And he wants that for them because he loves them. So he's not just shelling out a whole bunch of commands. Here are the things that you have to do. No, he loves them. He wants them to flourish. He wants them to thrive. He wants them to grow. And because of that, he then makes appeals to them about how they live. And he mentions in verse 12, obedience. This is where the, you, you, you get a lot from going through a, a letter or a book all in, in sequence. Because in the previous passage that we did a couple of weeks ago, he talks about Jesus becoming obedient to death, even death of a cross or death on a cross. And he, in verse 12 here, talks about the obedience of the Philippians as well. And he says in, in verse 12, at the end of the verse, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what on earth does that mean? That sounds a little bit like salvation by works, because we've got the word salvation there, and we've got the word work does this mean that we have to work for our salvation? No, obviously not. And we'll get to that in a minute. Start off with a word continue. Continue. On 17th of July, 2002, I was declared to be a husband. At that moment, I did not have husbanding all sussed out nor do I have it all sussed out yet. I am living the rest of my life growing into what I have already been declared to be 18 and a half years ago. And it's the same as we come to faith. We are the children of God. The moment we put our faith in him, the moment we decide to follow Jesus, we have the right. He gives us the right to be the sons and the daughters of God. But then there is a continuing and there is a lifelong process of growing and maturing into that which you have already been declared to be. So in December 1998, I became a child of God. And since then, I have been continuing. We are expected to continue. Paul wants his people to mature and to grow into their identity in Christ. So he says here, you've got to continue to work out your salvation. And this word salvation would have hit hard in Philippi. <coughs> Croaky voice, excuse me. This word salvation would have hit hard in Philippi because Caesar declared himself to be their savior. This is one of the words he used about himself. We've talked a lot in this letter about how Caesar said he was Lord, <clears throat> he was Curios, 
and he had to be declared as Lord at every public gathering. He also declared himself in Greek to be Soter, Savior, because there were civil wars about 40, 44 BC. Augustus came along and he put an end to all of that. And then he basically declared to the people, I am your Savior. I have brought you salvation from all of this conflict. And that word salvation would have been a big deal in the culture in Philippi. But Paul says to them, no, that's not the salvation that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about your salvation. Not salvation that Caesar claims to have provided, but the salvation that Jesus has provided. I want you to work that out in the context that you're living in. He does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. He, he has written already in Ephesians, famously in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So there it is, black and white, our salvation is down to the grace of God, which we then respond to in faith. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. But don't stop there because verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The outworking of the salvation that we have received, it works itself out in how we live. So Paul is not saying work for salvation. He's saying the salvation that you have received now needs to be worked out in your lifestyle. Listen very carefully to what the apostle is going to tell us in this passage. But let that sink in. You are to continue. I am to continue. Allowing the salvation that Jesus has given me to work out in my life. In my character, in my relationships, in what I do, in how I live. James says in chapter 2 verse 17, Faith, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. He didn't say it's limited. He didn't say it's not the ideal. He said it's dead. There's nothing there. If your faith is not working itself out in how you live, there's nothing there. It's dead. Paul uses a Greek word from which we get the word energy about working out our, our salvation. Our responsibility is not to save ourselves. Our responsibility is to put into practice what Jesus has already done for us in the world. He's basically saying to the Philippians, get on with living as God's people in Philippi. Get on with it. Work it out. You've received it. Now let it be worked out through your lives <clears throat> and through your relationships. He says something similar in, in Romans 12. Romans 12 comes after 11 chapters of weighty truth. 
There's a therefore and there's a call to have our minds renewed. In light of everything that Paul has said at the start of the first 11 chapters of Romans, he says, now change how you think. Let your thinking be transformed, renewed by the word of God. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, he says to the Corinthians, be children or be babies when it comes to evil. In other words, don't know how to do it. But in your thinking, be grown-ups. Paul is constantly calling the church to grow up in how we think. Because how we think affects how we act. And that's why the letter to the Philippians is full of stuff about changing our mindset. Having the mind of Christ from earlier in chapter 2. Let this mind, let this pattern of thinking be in you. Let it work itself out through you. Grow up, mature in your thinking as Christians. And he says at the end of the verse that, that we are to do this, at the end of verse 12, with fear and trembling. Now that's language that would be used in the Old Testament whenever somebody realizes that they are in the presence of God. They then respond with fear and trembling. In other words, Paul is saying, and I really want you to get this, letting your salvation be worked out in the character of how you live and how you treat other people in the church and outside of the church is of incredible seriousness with fear and trembling. He grabs the language that would have been used for someone who has just basically collapsed in the presence of the living God whether that's Isaiah and Isaiah 6 or whether it's John and Revelation 1, he uses that language to, sit, to emphasize this is so serious. So I hope you're listening carefully. This is so, so serious. It does not matter that you prayed a prayer of salvation 10 years ago. It does not matter that you attend a church service once a week. It does not matter uh, that you... You know, you accepted Jesus into your heart at some stage, unless you are continuing to work that out in your life. It's so serious. And he goes on to say, just in case you, you would misunderstand and think, oh goodness, there's a lot of work here for me to do. He, he plays on this word work and he says in verse 13, it is God who works in you. He's using that word energy again, energeo in, in Greek. And, and whenever Paul is, is saying this, he's basically, he's not saying, you know, you need to go and work all this out on your own. He's basically saying God is working in you and therefore you should be working that out in the context that you're living in. And he says in verse 13, God works in you to will and to act. Now this again is huge. God works in you to will and to act. Go to, go to Ezekiel 36, please. And, and then we'll also go to, we might go to Romans 7 and 8. To will and to act, a few words, seems like just whatever, throwaway phrase, it's not. Because one of the biggest problems that people had under the law was they had the will, they had the desire to do what was right, but they couldn't act it out. 
they couldn't actually work it out and, and go through with it because they didn't have the power. They had the will, but they didn't have the power. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God is speaking. Ezekiel's writing it down. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Now listen to this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my laws, my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow. In other words, the desire was there, but now there's going to be a power source to change that desire, to allow that desire to actually work itself out, that the will becomes the action, that God has not just given us the will to live in a certain way, but he has put his spirit within us so that we would have the power to also act in that way. Look at Romans 7 very briefly. Don't want to linger long here. This is a chapter that causes controversy. There are things that I agree to disagree on, and then there are things that I don't agree to disagree on. And I am absolutely passionately convinced that Romans 7 does not describe the life of a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe Romans 7 describes the life of a person trying to please God under the law without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a miserable chapter because that is a miserable way to live. And Romans 8 then describes life as a Christian filled with the Spirit and empowered to live in a way that pleases God. A couple of verses from, from Romans 7, verse, verse 18. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I've got the will to do it, but I can't act it out. Verse 19, for what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. This is not the Christian life, never the Christian life. This, this desire and this will to live in a certain way, but this complete inability to actually do it. That is not the Christian life. The will and the action now in Philippians, in Romans 8 and in Philippians 2.13, Paul says, God works in you. That's the Spirit. He doesn't mention the Spirit, but like who else is it? God works in you by the Spirit, both to will that you want to do it and to act that you have the power to do it. This is so, so important. God has put everything we need inside us for us then to work out our salvation in the context that we live in. Class, absolutely class. The Spirit, Gordon Fee says, the Spirit needs to be taken out of our creed. Not taken out, but it's got to be brought from the creed into reality. The Spirit needs to be taken out of the creed and put into the life of the church. 
instead of talking about the Spirit, let's see the Spirit at work in our corporate life. Not selfish ambition and empty glory, but in humility putting the needs of others first. Stop talking about the Holy Spirit. Stop reading books about him and obsessing over him and arguing about him and start living life in the power that he actually gives. God has worked and is working in us to will and to act, to want to do it and to be able to do it. That's the Christian life that the Philippians are being called to live. I watched a pheasant this morning out through the kitchen window. Pheasants are interesting beasts. I thought I had one, but I actually have realized now that we have three. Um, but I was watching them this morning. One of them was in the garden feasting his beak on birdseed and raisins that some compassionate softy had put out for him. Another one was in the field walking up and down on the other side of the hedge. And, and you know that agitated pheasant walk? Uh, we, we, we have a, a guy in the church who can do good impersonations of poultry and wildfowl. He'll maybe do one for us on, on Zoom sometime of a pheasant. But you know when a pheasant is, is quite agitated, this thing was walking up and down the other side of the fence, literally two meters away from a wee pile of raisins that his mate was gobbling up, and he did not come over to eat them. He couldn't figure out how to get through the, the fence, how to get through the hedge. There is a hedge and there's a wire mesh fence within the hedge and he's walking up and down looking at it thinking, how do I get in there? And I'm standing at the kitchen window thinking, you idiot, you can fly. You know, just fly over the hedge. It's about five feet tall. Fly over it, eat the raisins before your greedy mate has gobbled them all up. And then I'm thinking, we're a bit like the pheasant sometimes. We're sort of marching back and forward and working hard and trying to figure things out. And all the while there is a power within us that we're not using. That pheasant has the ability to just fly over the hedge and eat the raisins. But for some reason forgot that he could do that. And we sometimes go through life with awful effort. Instead of allowing and just embracing the work of the Holy Spirit within us to transform how we live. All of this at the end of verse 13 is for God's pleasure. Listen, church, God takes delight in you whenever you allow his spirit to work out salvation in you and through you. It delights him. It pleases him. You've got to love this. God is not standing with a big stick waiting to beat you whenever you mess up. He's standing with party poppers and, and party hats and celebrations and he's just throwing a party because he wants his children to mature and to grow in their faith. And whenever we do that, he loves it. It gives him pleasure. It gives him joy. Whenever I live out my faith in the world and how I treat other people, I bring joy to the creator of this incredible universe. That's a wonderful thought. A wonderful thought. And the command itself then. So what we've got in Philippians so far. Let me, let me read verse 127 because that's really where this passage has started. But it would be the longest sermon in history if we did it all at once. Chapter 1 verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, a phrase that he's used again in, in verse 12, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. He's talking about unity and he's talking about how they live out their citizenship as citizens of heaven. How do they live that out in the pagan context that they are living in? So that has happened, and then he has told them to do nothing out of selfish ambition and empty glory, and then he has painted this incredible picture of Jesus as the example of the mindset that we're meant to have, and now he's telling us to work out our salvation. He's telling us that God's the one working in us, that that we will and that we act, and now you're expecting some huge ethical command some just massive thing that we have to do or a huge long list of things that, that we have to do. And here's what you get. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. And that's it. And you look further down and you're like, surely there's more. Surely, Paul, there's a big list of things about all sorts of moral, immoral behavior and, and about how we should live. And that's it. He says, stop grumbling and stop arguing. And at the end of everything that has gone before, that's what he sets down in front of us. And I'll come back to it later, just to the magnitude of it, because it seems small, but it's big. Let's take a look at what Paul does here in verses 14 and 15. We're going to have to go for a drive, an Old Testament drive. So keep your finger in Philippians chapter 2 and jump in the Bible car and go to Exodus chapter 16. I've been reading Exodus lately. I'm behind again in my reading plan, Confession Time on YouTube. Exodus chapter 16. Listen to this. Now this is the people who have seen 10 plagues. This is the people who have been brought out into freedom from the oppression of Pharaoh and Egypt. This is the people who have walked through the Red Sea and seen the army that wanted to kill them drown in the Red Sea behind them. These guys have seen a lot. Chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Grumbling. It marks their journey through the wilderness. Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Now that's interesting, people. Listen carefully to that. The Israelites were grumbling against Moses and Aaron, And Moses says to them, listen, fellas, you're actually grumbling against God. Be careful about grumbling. 
Who are we that you should grumble against us? Verse 8, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against God. And on and on and on it goes, this grumbling. In chapter 17, they're thirsty. And in verse 2, they quarreled with Moses. They argued with him. And said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water and they grumbled against Moses. This word grumbling just comes up again and again and again and again. They grumbled, they disputed, they questioned, they wanted to go back to Egypt, they didn't like the food, they grumbled about their leaders, they grumbled against God, they grumbled because they were afraid that some other enemy army was going to wipe them out. And an entire generation, listen to this, an entire generation dies in the desert of obscurity and insignificance because of grumbling. Ponder that. Ponder that. Grumbling and arguing. And God says, you lot can die in the desert. I will take a new generation into the promised land. You just listen to that. Grumbling. Grumbling. We'll talk about it more later. So that's the first place we're stopping on our little Old Testament drive. The fact that God's people grumbled their way through the wilderness. A little bit further on in Deuteronomy 32, Moses writes a song. And God's people know the Old Testament well and they would know this song well and they're not going to miss it whenever somebody quotes a line out of the song. Just like you and I, if we know songs from years ago that everybody knows and somebody quotes a line straight away, you know what song they're talking about. Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses writes a song and he says, they have acted corruptly towards God. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but they are a warped and crooked generation. Now, you're going to have to hold on to that. They have acted corruptly towards God. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, that is translated, they are worthy of blame. Now, hold this. They're worthy of blame. They are no longer his children. In a war- they have become, they have become a warped and crooked generation generation. And then jump in the car again and go to Daniel near the end of the Old Testament. This is the last one. Daniel chapter 12. We're about a thousand years after Moses. God's people are back in oppression and slavery again in exile. And Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. That would be the stars. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. So we've got these three passages in the Old Testament that Paul is going to bring in and use here in Philippians. And before I look at how he uses them, I want you to understand, church, that you will not get the New Testament without the Old Testament. You will not get Jesus and the church if you don't get God and Israel. 
Jesus did not come to abandon Israel and start again with a new group of people called the church. Jesus came to show the world what Israel should have shown the world, what the character of God is like. And then Jesus threw the doors wide open and created one new humanity out of Jews and Gentiles. And now the only people of God on planet Earth are those who follow Jesus. And it doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. Being a Jew is of no advantage whatsoever. God has one people made from those who follow Jesus by faith. And if we're going to understand Jesus and we're going to understand Paul and understand the New Testament, we've got to know Israel. We've got to know because this story is planted right in the middle of the story of God and Israel. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. It's the first thing Paul says in verse 14. So he's picking up from Exodus and the wilderness grumblings. Now look at verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Paul has taken that verse from the Song of Moses, where Moses said, you are blameworthy, you're not children of God, you have become a crooked and depraved generation. Paul takes that and he flips it around and he says, don't grumble and then you will not be blameworthy, you'll be blameless, you will be the children of God in the midst of a crooked generation around you, rather than you being that crooked generation. So as he, as he counsels the people to stop grumbling, he says the outcome of that is a reversal of what Moses said about Israel. And then he quotes Daniel 12 and says, you will shine like stars in the universe, in the middle of this dark, wicked culture, if you will live like this. Church, are you expecting something massive? Because what Paul said was, stop grumbling. Stop arguing. That is the command that he gave. This grumbling is absolutely epidemic in our culture. We live in a world where people are encouraged to complain, encouraged to make a claim, encouraged to grumble. And when we're selfish then we become warped and twisted and that works itself out, not in putting others before ourselves, but in grumbling and complaining. I stood in Ikea in October last year in the customer services department where there was a very long queue and they only had half of their customer service tills open because they're too close together to be able to fit in with social distancing. So only half of them were open. The queue was long and this woman got really ticked and she started to complain and to complain out loud so everyone could hear it. And it was ugly. It was really, really, really ugly. Complaining, grumbling, instead of being thankful that the place is open, instead of being thankful that they'll take your stuff back, grumbling that you had to wait an extra 10 or 15 minutes. Grumbling is a horrible thing. And grumbling, remember, this passage goes all the way back to 127 where we've been called to unity. 
grumbling and arguing are major crimes in the church of Jesus Christ because they destroy that unity. I think Christians are brilliant at grumbling. Brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant at it. In fact, if I was to name, and I'll not, because he might be listening, one person I know who I would say I genuinely have never heard him complain about anything. Never. And he's not a follower of Jesus, but I've never heard him complain. And he works hard and his livelihood is a hard livelihood and there are ups and downs in it and I've never heard a complaint. But in the church, grumbling and complaining and moaning and gurning over and over again. And the reason is we have not got the mind of Christ. We have not emptied ourselves, as Linda talked about last week. We are still selfish. We still want things to be our own way, and we grumble and complain. And probably within the church is where you will find more grumbling and more complaining than any other context. It is shameful. And I wonder how many of the current generation of God's people will die in obscurity in the wilderness and never reach the promised land of fulfilling the mission, the great commission, and seeing disciples made. Because they're too fond of grumbling and complaining. I don't want to die in obscurity. I don't want to drop in the desert short of the promised land of what God has called us to. Stop grumbling. The word in Greek... Do you remember when you did English, literacy, whatever you want to call it, and there was this thing called onomatopoeia, where a word sounded like the thing that it was describing? Well, we've, we've got a word here in Greek that just sounds about right for grumbling. Are you ready for this? Yeah, you've got to memorize this one. The word in Greek is gongutsmos. <laughs> gongutsmos. It is a horrible, clumsy ugly, unattractive word. And Paul says, don't gongutsmos. Don't complain. Stop grumbling. It is, it is described by scholars as whispering complaints, talking in secret about people, making negative comments, the kind of grumbling that promotes ill will and division instead of harmony. He says, don't do it. Stop grumbling. Stop arguing. And you know what? If you do that, if you'll put that attitude to death and stop grumbling and stop arguing, you will shine like a star. I've been walking the dogs a lot late at night recently and, and looking up at the stars and thinking about this verse. And that's the way you will be if you don't default to this grumbling, complaining, arguing mindset. You will stick out like a sore thumb. Everybody will notice that you don't grumble. So how do we shine? Paul, Paul goes on to say, shine like stars in the universe. We shine by not grumbling, and we shine also, in verse 16, by holding out the word of life, or holding on to the word of life. The word of life does not mean the Bible. When the Bible is talking about itself, it uses the term scriptures. The word of life is the message of the gospel about Jesus Christ. That's the word of life that brings life. 
that Jesus, God became flesh, that God lived among us, that he taught, that he did miracles and healings, his kingdom came, that he died on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins, that he was raised from the dead, death defeated, Satan's kingdom now being plundered, and that he will return as king. That's the word of life. And we are to cling to it in the midst of this generation. And we are also to hold it out to others. Life is not found anywhere else but in Jesus. And Paul finishes the passage in verse 17 and 18. Talking about sacrifice. Because this life is not easy. He he, he talks about the Philippians as being an, an offering of sacrifice and service coming from their faith. So he sort of sees them as being the animal on the altar. They are being sacrificed. They are being living sacrifices, so to speak, from Romans. And he sees himself as being a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice, like Jesus poured himself, emptied himself out in the previous passage. You see, living out the gospel is going to cost you. Living against the grain will cost you. Being different from the society, shining like a star in the dark night of this world will cost you. And he uses this language of sacrifice. But at the end of it all, he wants to say to them that in verse 16, I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul maybe has wee voices in his head. I don't know if you're familiar with this saying, you're wasting your time. Give up. Give up. You're not achieving anything. Look at you, Paul, sitting in prison, writing your wee letters. Just give up and let it go. But Paul says, no. He says, if you will let the gospel live out in your lives, then my life has not been in vain. My life has not been a waste of time. Let me just conclude with a thought about sin. I think sometimes we, we sort of categorize sin and we, we have in our mind, we have the big sins and the little sins. We, we take certain things and we elevate them and say, oh, goodness me, that's awful. And yes, there are things that we shouldn't do. And I'm not saying that little sins should be tolerated. But Paul doesn't linger long on the things that we tend to linger on. Paul majors, and I want you to understand this, Paul majors on how we treat other people. Grumbling and complaining was causing division in Philippi, has caused division in the church ever since, caused a generation to die in the desert without seeing the promised land. It is a massive issue. We've seen him call for unity. We've seen him paint the picture of Jesus pouring himself out and becoming obedient unto death. And then we've waited for this command to come and we've expected something huge and we've got something huge. Because for Paul, for the New Testament, for Jesus, the biggest issue is how we treat other people. That's the stuff that we've got to work on. That's the stuff that really, really matters. Have you grumbled? Have I grumbled? Complained? Put other people down? Criticized them? Moaned about them? It's a massive, massive issue. 
And it's not like there's some choppiness here in the letter where we've got the stuff about Jesus in 6 to 11 and then we suddenly, suddenly Paul thinks, oh goodness, I've talked about Jesus here. I better give them a wee command about how to live. No, it flows right from one to the other because of who Jesus is, because of his salvation, because God's at work in you, work this out among you and stop grumbling and stop complaining. So church, check your heart. Check my heart as well. Does this attitude creep up in me? Do I think it's a small thing when I moan and gurn and complain and grumble about things? Do I, do I set that aside saying, oh, I've, I've got every right to be annoyed about that person and grumble about them? Or do I take the lead from Paul and what he says here that this is actually massive, huge, and it needs to stop? if we're going to work out our salvation in the context that we live in. Thanks for listening. Let me just pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross and the resurrection. Thank you for the life that you've given us. Thank you that you have not left us just trying to work things out on our own, but that you are working in us, that you've given us the power to fly over the hedge and get the raisins, that you've given us the strength, that you've given us your spirit to live out your salvation. Let us take it seriously, Lord, with fear and trembling, and let us put to death the selfish, grumbling, arguing that we can engage in so much. We don't want to die in the desert. We want to reach the promised land, Lord. Help us to do it. Father, bless your church this week. Teach us to be a people who are not grumblers, but who are grateful, that we would put grumbling to death by instead focusing on gratitude and thanksgiving for all the good things that you do for us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. See some of you very soon on the Mighty Zoom. Bye.